Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Thank you. My name is Clint. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that, uh, and I really am. This has been a, a, a wonderful weekend so far. I've enjoyed myself very much. It's uh, uh, good to see people that I uh, have known over the years here and, and uh, to meet new people. I'm particularly delighted that we have new people in our midst, new members of AA and Al-Anon here. I welcome you. I'm very, very glad you're here. I I didn't, uh, it's funny, uh, we get, we uh, always wonder who's going to pick us up at the airport, and this time I had three guys to do that. Uh, I came lugging my little bag off the airplane yesterday in Louisville, and there were three guys, and they had this goofy-looking sign with my name on it, so I knew who they were. <laughs> A couple of years ago, I uh, it's been a while now. I called my office from uh, some. I called for messages, and the receptionist said, "Well, you." Uh, she gave me my messages, and then she said, "You, there's one more here. You, you really have an interesting life." And I said, uh, "Yeah, I really do." But h- how do you know that? What are you talking about? She said, "Well, I didn't know you were going to be in Indianapolis this weekend." And I said, "Yeah, I am. How do you know?" She said, "Well, there's a note here from a guy." Uh, and he says that uh, uh, he's going to meet you at the airport and you'll know who he is because he's got a wooden leg and he'll be carrying a big book. And, uh, <laughs> and sure enough, he had a wooden leg and a big book and... Uh, um, he was a, had been a hell's angel, and he lost that leg in a motorcycle accident. It was raining. Uh, we went down to the parking lot. He, he was driving a Pinto that night, and I was very grateful for his Pinto. <laughs> we had fun together. He and I that weekend were people that ordinarily wouldn't mix, but I liked this guy a lot. He uh, had an earring. Uh, I told everybody that it was really the Ohio State Wildlife Commission caught him sleeping in the park and tagged his ear and sent his hat He uh, took me back to the airport. He, he he had a little gift for me in a brown paper bag. He, he said, I want you to have this. And I, I looked inside of it. It's an amazing thing. He said, that's my first wooden foot. And I, <laughs> a lot of things come to your mind when you look in a bag. And, I don't know if that goes through that detector at the gate or not, you know. I made him keep it. I didn't want to take it. So I'm glad to be here, and I was glad to ride across the country with these guys, Rod and Jeff and uh, our new friend Joe, who is uh, sober today. Sober today. And I'm glad you're here. I'm very glad you're here. I was uh, uh, coming across uh, and talking to Joe and and uh, cooking along with him, uh, uh, 
he began to laugh a little bit there in the back of the car. Always a mistake for a new guy in AA. If you're new here, don't laugh. Don't get don't get caught up in this laughter. It's uh, uh, you you may stay. You'll hear people say weird things. I uh, somebody down in uh, Texas said once that uh, their sponsor told them. If it's going to be funny someday, it's probably funny today. And I went, wow. I didn't want to hear that. Because we know it'll never be funny. And then finally we said, well, maybe it'll be funny someday. No, it's funny today. It's funny. All of the tragedy, all of the goofiness that we went through, there is um, nothing to do but uh, laugh at it. Today, my life is an answered prayer. It's an absolute answered prayer. And I'm glad to be here with you. I'm so glad to see Anne here today, and I know that you'll uh, enjoy her tomorrow. I was glad to see my friend Wayne last night, and to hear Beverly talk today was wonderful. And I was uh, touched by Susan this morning and by Lisa. I'm... uh, I'm very much in mind of the fact that one day, uh, one hot summer day, I was walking down the street in Glendale, California, some years ago, and a car pulled up, and I looked over, and the guy I knew, he said, I'm going to take you someplace today called me by name, and he's just pulled up beside me as I'm walking along the side. He said, Clint, I'm going to take you someplace today. And that guy was a bail bondsman, and uh, I didn't know where we were going. (laughs) And I thought maybe I was going back to jail. There might have been a warrant or something. I thought maybe to one of the uh, fidget farms out there in California, uh, and it would have seemed right to me. I I had a, I'll tell you why, I lived in a little, I lived in a little room, uh, in a, in a little building that had four rooms in it. Four rooms occupied by male alcoholics. I never really saw those other guys, I would hear them sometimes. I had, uh, I could hear, they had a shower in that little building. I never visited it personally, but I, I could hear it out there. I could hear guys throwing up out there in that shower. I uh, I never expected to live in a little tiny room like that. I never really thought I would live and die in a place like that. A few years ago, my wife has heard me talk about this little place. I called it a garage for a long time. She said, take me by the garage. And uh, we drove down in there. She said, is that it? I said, that's it. She said, that's not a garage. That's a shed is what that is. <laughs> and I looked, and by God, that's right. There had never been a car in that little place, I'll tell you. It was just a, a long, narrow, nasty little building that had four little rooms in it. Four little rooms. And I had in my room, I had a clock radio. And that radio would just start going. It just uh, played weird music. Even after I pulled the plug out of the wall, that radio would play, you know. <laughs> And so when he said he was going to take me someplace today, uh, I had another reason to think it might be to the nut house. He, 
I woke up under the cot one morning and I looked over in the corner. It was still dark, but not so dark I couldn't see that rat over there in the corner. And I was out of booze and out of money and out of hope and out of everything, but I, that rat scared me because he was a big guy and I knew that he might charge me if I tried to get up on that wet mattress. And I knew he'd win if he did and I didn't want to get him all nervous and everything, so I just kind of hunkered down there and kept my eye on that rat. And the, and the clock said it was 4.04 or something like that. And I hung on for an hour. And I looked again and it was 4.20. It was one of those sweetheart of a nights, you know. <laughs> and then finally, agonizingly, first light of day. And I looked over there again in that uh, corner. And in some weird way, that rat had turned into a pair of socks. And uh, so when you have a radio that just bursts into music and you've been held hostage by a pair of socks all night, <laughs> you figure somebody says, I'm going to take you someplace today. There might be a fidget farm in your future. <laughs> I didn't ask him where we were going. And he took me to you. He brought me to you. And I didn't stay. I was around here for three weeks, and then I got drunk. I found some pills in that little room. And I started taking those pills. They were uppers. I liked those uppers. Allow me to drink longer. And I started taking those things. And I was drunk pretty quick, and I was drunk for two weeks, and bad, bad drunk. And I woke up on a Monday morning in that little room, in that nasty little room. That nasty, smelly room with the sticky linoleum floor and the light coming out of the ceiling and the little box of underwear and sheets in it. I don't know why I kept that. My car was long gone. I hadn't seen that thing in a long time. My, uh, I had three sons and I hadn't seen them in a long time. <laughs> Nor their mothers. There were two, two marriages. I had warrants out for my arrest. I had no job and wasn't likely to get one soon. And uh, a little more business to do with the uh, Glendale Police Department and the Superior Court in California, the Municipal Court in California, and a Domestic Relations Court in California. And I didn't know where to go, and so I walked that hot summer morning on the 14th of August, 1966, over to the club in Glendale where that bail Bonson had taken me. About 10, I think, maybe, mid-morning. And I walked up that long flight of stairs that they had hanging on that building and into a room that I had been into before during that three weeks that I had been with you. And there was a guy there that morning at 10 o'clock that was doing his job in AA. Because he had the coffee on and the door open. And when I walked in, he recognized me from the meetings before. He said, how you doing? I said, I'm not doing good. He said, what happened? I said, I got drunk again and let everybody down. Oh, he said, are you alcoholic? 
made it sound like he knew, but he wondered if I knew. <laughs> and so I said, uh, yeah, I've been an alcoholic about a month now. <laughs> and I think we can nip this in the bud. I didn't say that. I just, uh, he's a sweet guy. He was so sweet because he let me have the simple dignity of the fact without really going after me for anything. He just said, well, if you're alcoholic, you say you, you, you got drunk and you think you let us down? I said, yeah. He said, no. Now, if you're alcoholic, you're going to drink. You didn't let us down. You're going to drink. He said, you're going to drink no matter what. Oh, that was something to hear. I mean, I, when he said it, I knew that it was true, and I knew that I had known it for a long time. And I could not have said it. Every cell in my body knew, yes, I drink no matter what. I look you right in the eye and I say, I'm not going to drink tonight, honey. I drink. I'm going to have two and then I'll be home. I drink. I just need a little bit of money for whatever. I drink. I drink no matter what. There's nothing that gets in the way of that. And I drink when I don't want to. I drink when there isn't any reason to drink. And I drink when there's a lot of reason to drink. I drink no matter what. And he said... Uh, you're going to drink no matter what. I had never heard it. I knew it when he said it. He said, people, good good people are going to tell you don't drink no matter what, and you will drink no matter what. He wouldn't talk to me about tomorrow. He did say, he said, you didn't surprise us when you got drunk. If you want to surprise us, he said, get a job. That, that would surprise us. <laughs> no, drinking, no, hell no, you're going to drink. <laughs> he wasn't unkind about it. And I knew he was right. I knew I always would drink. And that was uh, on the 14th of August, 1966, and I, I never drank after that. I did not drink again. I was 29. I'm 62 now. I, those uh, three kids and I are in good shape. They're all up and off the payroll. I'm so happy. <laughs> they got kids. And it astonishes me today that I never drank again, that that was lifted from me. I mean, it's not like it astonishes me in the sense that I just got it, but it was a long time before I got it. I was nine months sober, and I got it. I remember standing at the ocean in Santa Monica. I was allowed that day for the first time to see my youngest son, 
without any adults around. We just walked down to the ocean. And I'm looking out, and it got, I don't know, my, I remember he said, my little boy who was four, he said, why are you crying, Daddy? And I was in tears because I realized I had not had a drink in nine months. And I didn't quit. I didn't do any, I can't stop. I know that. I'm always going to drink. And if you're new here, um, it looks like we quit. You know, you know that uh, you can't. If you, it's funny, isn't it? We 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 decide someplace along the line that we're going to quit, and it never quite works out that way. If you're like me, you tell people I'm going to quit. Tell too many people. <laughs> First time I quit, I was at Camp Pendleton, and I told my commander, and I told the the base uh, chaplain, I told the base psychiatrist, who turned out to be a dermatologist, I told him anyway. I I told my wife, of course. I told her dad. I told it, and six weeks later, I'm drunker than I've ever been. And I tried to quit a lot, a lot. I lived in that little room, and I would, uh, I quit a couple of times in the morning every day. This is the last half pint I'm going to need. I'm quit. You go down for another one and another one. And I never got to where I could quit. And I would guess, without knowing too many of the alcoholics in this room that none of them quit. It's not like if you're new and think you should quit, you're in a room where everyone but you can quit. I want you to know that. There are people that are hard drinkers that quit if a sufficiently strong reason becomes operative in their life, as it says in the book. But most of us are not in that number. We drink no matter what. We didn't quit. And yet I haven't had a drink for 32 years and some change. I've been an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous over that time. I'm a member of the Pacific Group in Los Angeles. I have a sponsor, a guy named Clancy, that's been my sponsor for 30 years or more, a little over. And I never quit. And I take a birthday cake every year. And it doesn't seem to be required of me that I quit. There's no step about quitting. You'd think there would, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think it'd go, step one, quit! (laughs) Knock it off! (laughs) You can do it! Well, you can't do it if you're alcoholic. Chuck C. out there in California, dead now. Marvelous, marvelous guy. He used to say, if I'd have known that was going to be my last drink, I'd have had two. <laughs> That's how I am. <laughs> but we're in a state of awful hopelessness. And we can't quit. And we can't But I think, I think we say a prayer. I don't know my prayer. I don't know what, hor- what 
that last horrible night that I drank, I don't know what prayer I said. I know I did nothing to earn even ten minutes of sobriety, much less this time. I heard a gal a couple of, maybe 18 months went by, and I'm sitting in a meeting one night, and I'm beginning to get the idea that there is a point in asking for help. It's important to ask. It's important to ask people in your group for help. It's important to prayer, to pray. To ask God in that way. And it's nothing I ever wanted to do. And I didn't even know I had asked God. I didn't get it that my prayers were really prayers because they're so angry and they're so profane. And I'm in a meeting one night and this gal's talking about the alcoholic's prayer. Gail died sober after that, but she just touched me that night. She looked like a million bucks, like these wonderful, dignified, beautiful women in AA and Al-Anon. And she's one of them, and she's a drunk. And she's got a kind of a little cynicism about her, and I like that. And she's one of these people that as she began to tell this story, I figured, I really like this one. She's going to, she wouldn't, she'd understand me. Always a frightening thought. Um, (laughs) She's talking about coming out of a blackout in her little apartment in Hollywood, and she was sitting on the mantel over the fireplace when she came out of the blackout (laughs) with her cat. And they had little cat food and vodka up there, a little something for everybody. And uh, (laughs) I'm liking her better all the time. Oh, Gail, you're a pig. You're my kind of girl. (laughs) And she said the reason that they were sitting up there on the mantel was because there was four inches of water on the floor. I'm thinking, we ought to go to dinner. (laughs) And then she told us why there was water on the floor. She'd started to take a bath last Tuesday, and the whole deal got away from her somehow. (laughs) Yes, Gail. Join me, baby. Her alcoholic's prayer? Jesus, God, what's wrong with me? That prayer. That prayer. If you're new, you said that prayer. You did. They're heartbreaking prayers. The Freedom of Information Act made some, inf- made some documents available out of World War II. Somebody had worked up some of those documents. I read about the amphibious evasion at the south of Italy. Allied troops against a well-fortified, dug-in German position. And the uh, intelligence wasn't very good. They didn't know how deep the beach was. They had no idea how well-fortified it was. They didn't know about the machine guns at the tree line. The weather was bad. And wave after wave after wave of amphibious troops came aboard, came ashore from these uh, circling mic boats and just bring them in and drop them off and go back. And the bodies, because of the machine gun fire, were stacking up. And it was then 
getting dark and the machine gun fire stopped and the bodies started stopped coming in, but the dead bodies were stacked up at the shoreline. And the next day it happened again. And finally, the fourth day, they secured the beach and the graves registration detail was coming through. And it became apparent that during these hideously horrible nights, men who knew they were going to die had found a paper and a pencil someplace and wrote a note to their wife or a girlfriend or wrote a poem or a prayer. This one guy's prayer touched me. He said, in this awful, hideous night, he said, God come. Come now. Come yourself. Don't send your son. This is no place for children. And I don't think I would have framed it that way, but I got the prayer. Because we are so lost. And we long for hope. And then we are found. And I'll, I, for one, I have never, never gotten over the wonder of being found again. And it's just amazing to me to be here with you. And so if you're new, the people that can quit, they're not here. They're out where? At the movie, I guess. You know what they did? They quit. That's what they did. <laughs> We're the ones that can't quit. We're the seekers. We're the ones that died the great death for a moment to everything, including the fact that we have a right to chemical peace of mind. And when we die that death, God finds no obstacle. And amazing stuff happens. I didn't get that for quite a while. I didn't really, I used to read this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. I liked Bill's story, parts of it. But it, some of it mystified me. Some of it annoyed me. He'd say things like, uh, he's in town's hospital after he gets sober and he's had this white light experience and it's just all so profoundly different for him in a day and he knew it was different and he knew he had a purpose in life and he began to make these plans and he said things like God comes to most men gradually but his impact on me was sudden and profound and I would think how nice for you Bill If I had a white light experience, sure, I could get rolling too. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'd been brought up in the Church of the Air in Billings, Montana, and we were fundamentalists. Our people handed out religious tracts on the street corners. I hated that kind of thing. I felt so foolish. My uncle went down to the front of the church and got himself saved one morning. And they sent him to China to be a missionary. That'll keep you away from the front of that church, I'll tell you that. <laughs> they took us out when I was 13, I think, 12, 13. We went out one March, one brisk morning in March to the Yellowstone River and got baptized. There's an experience for you. Um, <laughs> 
I didn't find God. I didn't find much anything for about three days, as I recall. I... They scared little Clinty that day, I'll tell you. I was five days sober. I went up to a guy and said, how do you get to sleep at night if you don't drink? You got If you're new and you start asking questions, you've got to watch it. Because <laughs> these guys look so disarming in some way. But you ask them a question, and they think you want an answer. <laughs> Over in Glendale, this guy said, he looks so nice. He said to me, he said, uh, I don't know what he was going to tell me, or what I thought he was going to tell me. But he said, you really want to get to sleep tonight? And I said, yes. He said, where do you live? I said, well, I live down the street. I didn't tell him about the shed. My smelly little room. I just said, I live down. He said, do you live alone? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'll tell you what, if you really want to get to sleep tonight, just for... Just for openers, when you get back to your room, when you get back home, make your bed. And I thought, <laughs> housekeeping hints. <laughs> I could have gotten that in the Marine Corps, you know. <laughs> and then he nailed me. He said, really? Put clean sheets on your bed. And I wondered how he knew about those sheets. <laughs> Nobody had mentioned the sheets. <laughs> and I said, okay, thanks. He said, wait a minute. After you get the bed made, you want to get to sleep, don't you? I said, yeah. You know, if you, if you can't get to sleep, you got to go out and get a bottle. That's the only way to get to sleep. And I wanted... Now I had seen you. And something had happened to me. And I knew you were sober. I didn't think it would that would happen to me. But I'm looking at things now. And to even ask that question is a big deal. He said, after you get that bed made, say a prayer. I said, okay. He said, he gave me a prayer to say. If God be for us, who can be against us was the prayer he gave me. Well, now he's lost me. That's St. Paul. I know that. I never liked St. Paul. I don't want anything to do with St. Paul. <laughs> but he knew about those sheets. <laughs> and I got home that night, and uh, I'm thinking about now I lay me down to sleep and all of that. You get to that part about if I should die before I wake, that'll keep you awake a while just to... <laughs> Because and only because he knew about those sheets, I said that stupid prayer. And uh, the next thing I knew, it was seven the next morning, and I had slept all night, and I hadn't slept like that in a year, and I've never forgotten it. A couple of years later, talking about questions, I went up to my sponsor. I said, I got a problem. We were in a group of people over at his place in the yard one Saturday. He said, what? I said, uh, 
I hate my ex-wife. <laughs> well, what's he going to do, right? But I figure if you have a sponsor, you should throw something at him every once in a while. <laughs> something that they can't interfere with your life by answering. <laughs> he asked me the, <laughs> the question that I, 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 I was amazed. He said to me, you want to do something about that? Well, I really like hating her, you know? <laughs> but you, what do you have to say? You have to say, sure, I want to do that. I wouldn't have bothered you otherwise. <laughs> he said, well, if you ever want to do uh, change how you feel about somebody, uh, it's important to change how you treat them. I said, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> he said, how is that child support coming along? <laughs> well, I'm going to get to that. He said, yeah, you are. And you're going to get to it this week. You got a court order. You're earning enough money. You've been playing cute with that for a while now. And if you can't get to it this week, you can get yourself another sponsor. Well, I got to it. I got to it. And I just spent some time with my youngest son and with his wife and their two kids. The healthy, happy, wholesome family. And I could never have had the sweet relationship I have with him but for the fact that my sponsor bludgeoned me into keeping that little commitment about child support. I went, I started sending those, I didn't have a checking account, I started sending money orders. I didn't have a checking account until I was five years sober. I don't do well with checking accounts. I don't have a good history of that. As long as there's some checks laying around, I figure it's about the equivalent of money in the bank, right? <laughs> and so, maybe seven, eight months went by, and I'm sending a money order every payday, as he told me to do. Take the envelope with a stamp on it addressed to work. Take it with you to the bank. Get it in the mail before you leave the bank. I like the way it made me feel. At Christmas time, I went over to drop a check off. He said, and first of all, don't send it, in, don't give it to her in person and get cute. Just mail it. And then this one time, seven months later, I was going over there and I had the money order and I gave it to her. And I left her place feeling more like I had grown up than ever before in my life. I left, walked down the stairs from her little apartment in Santa Monica in that warm, winter evening there and felt like a man and knew that I really loved my little boy. Funny what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. I heard it said one day so well, this lady was talking, she said, this is a weird place where problems die of neglect. I went, wow. The worst problems you have if you're new will die of neglect. You will get your mind away from them and they will just shrivel up and go someplace. 
It's so interesting to be here in the midst of these people. It is so interesting to begin this path. It's so interesting for me to read that book, to see Bill talk about God's impact on him being sudden and profound, and to look at it one day years later, and to think, my God, on the 14th of August, 1966, I was a drunk. And on the 15th of August, 1966, I was not a drunk, and I have not been a drunk since that time, and I didn't do that. And by any standard, you'd have to say that God's impact on me was sudden and profound. And I stopped being annoyed with Bill. A guy asked me a funny thing along the way. He said, uh, we were talking about step two, about being restored to sanity, about the fact that I can't get there, about the fact that ever since I was about five years old, I know that I am not big enough for this life. And I know two other things. I know that I should be big enough, and I know that i got to keep you from finding out that I'm not big enough. And what I do is I'm on the march for power. And maybe the money in my grandma's missionary jar is going to be enough. Maybe the lie I can tell. Maybe the candy I can steal at the store and give to the candy is enough. Me and something must be added to me to make me enough. I knew that. And I knew I had never been enough. And I knew that much of the stuff that happened in my life that was so disastrous was related to the fact that I'm a power seeker. I need power. Lack of power. We're, we are, we're power seekers. We are like that. We want power. So much so and for so long that we forget that we're after power. Lack of power would not be a dilemma if we didn't really dig power. And I looked everywhere for my power. Everywhere. And I had an interesting conversation with the guy because I could see that it all amounted to a certain insanity. It all amounted to looking to see if I could possibly come to believe there was a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. And now I'm beginning to see that the power can't be mine. It isn't a power that I can tap into that I can use to manage my life. It's a power that will manage my life. There's a big difference. Huge difference. But my signature isn't all over everything. And we're not talking about a partnership either. Sometimes in California we... uh, Here, uh, a meeting started with uh, some Thomas Merton language that goes like this. We know you want us to be real partners with you in this business of living. I looked all over that big book for that kind of language. It isn't in that. There's employer-employee. There's father-child. There's director-actor. There's principal-agent. But there's no... And I'm glad. I don't think that it should ever get to be... I suppose it'd start out God and Hodges. (laughs) 
And then he'd slide right into Hodges and God. And then, what, Hodges and Associates, I guess. No, it isn't that. It's the Father Child for me. And he said, uh, but in those days I thought, I, I'm really not insane. He said, well, that's not really the question, is it? And I said, well, I don't know what the question would be. He said, well, the question is, what would sanity look like? That's what you have to do. Get a vision of sanity pulled together. And he said, if you really want to test the other question, why don't you do this? Write down the 20 craziest things you ever did in your life and bring the list to me. I said, okay. And I came back to him with my list. And we've all got a list. I, the first time I got arrested, it was off a fire escape at midnight at the University of Oregon. And the fire escape happened to be at the Tridelt House, a sorority there. And uh, they pulled me right off of that thing. And uh, I'd been in a bar off campus, and there was a pretty, pretty lady there, uh, somebody that was a student. I knew she was a Tridelt. And she almost looked at me, and I <laughs> felt that connection, the bond. And so I'm going up the fire escape about midnight to discuss our future. <laughs> that was the first of many arrests. I wrote that down. I got to uh, I got to dental school at Oregon. Not a good place for me to be. Uh, on Saturday morning, it was a, a demanding. Uh, 40 hours a week in class and clinic and another 40 hours a week of study and on Saturday morning at 8 o'clock we had a patient in a chair in the clinic that we were supposed to be doing something with um, on Friday night I get drunk and so 8 o'clock Saturday I'm not really at my best I have a slight tremor helped somewhat by the Dexamil I would drop <laughs> and they just come out with that new high-speed air-driven handpiece and uh, you can take out a quadrant of teeth just twitching there a little bit there. I made a set of dentures for a guy the first year I was up there he came up the second year with his wife and somebody was working on her he'd see me at the end of the clinic he'd go sight <laughs> I hated to see him come and he'd go, something wrong with my teeth. <laughs> they threw me out of there. That went on my list. I drank in uh, on Burnside Street that summer, waiting to go in the Marine Corps. I'd been getting deferments. And I came out of a blackout in one of those... I like drinking in Skid Row bars. They're easy drinking. They don't ask you a lot of piercing questions like, how are you? You know, <laughs> nobody cares. <laughs> and I'm suddenly aware I'm at a table, a little round wooden carved up table. And across from me is a woman that I never met. <laughs> and we seem to be together, <laughs> traveling. 
moving forward. <laughs> Unity through humility. I didn't know her name. I didn't know where we met. I didn't know the nature of our relationship. She had her things with her in paper bags. Yeah. I would have asked her, but she was sleeping. Um, she had a little chili on her cheek, so I knew we'd had dinner. Some delicate flower I'd invited to dine. Uh, there's a line in the book I love it. It's one in one of the personal stories. This guy says, somehow I got out of there. And that was the story of my drinking. I, whether I'm in a bar, in jail, at working, or in the... What, somehow I got out of there. And I left that bar that night. And in the Marine Corps, I got through officer candidate school, and I loved the Marine Corps. And the day that I stood in front of the commander at El Toro and got a letter of reprimand, and was told by this two-star general that there is no room in the Marine Corps for an alcoholic lieutenant. It was a bad day in my life. And I left that office knowing that he was goofy if he thought I was an alcoholic, knowing that I am not an alcoholic, knowing that I need a drink more than anything else. And I got drunk out there in the Orange Grove north of the base that afternoon drinking hot vodka out of my car, coming to thinking the next thing I see is going to be a military police chief. And that went on my list. Slapping a child went on my list. Sitting next to a woman at a bar, and she said, why are you drinking so hard and so fast? And I, I don't know what to say to that. I was living at home with my wife and little boy. I said, just said it. I'm drinking because my wife was killed not long ago in a car wreck. And that takes a lot more drinking. I couldn't wake up not knowing I had said that. Denied the existence of my family. That, all that went on my list. I got out of the Marine Corps by the skin of my teeth, moved to Glendale, and I started out living in a garage and in a, in a little apartment, and then I lived in the car, and then I lived in the little shed. The cars go away, don't they? They just disappear. They just do. If you've been saving up for an oil change, uh, I understand you. If that engine has already seized, I've been there. And then you're afoot is what you are. But before I went that far, I'm driving along. The last arrest I had for drunk driving, the light was red and I stopped. And it turned uh, green and amber and red <laughs> and green and amber. And the guy right behind me is in a squad car, and I'm uh, kind of resting there. <laughs> and he gets me out and has me doing my thing. They get cute. He said, that's the only shade of green we have here in Glendale. <laughs> But the thing, and I, he said, you're under arrest after he put me through my little touch-your-nose stuff. 
and I immediately announced my choice for a jury trial. I always want a jury trial. I want justice. <laughs> Clancy one day said, don't be asking for justice. You're getting justice. Go for mercy, maybe. But, not <laughs> but on the report, the report that I read three, uh, three weeks later, the guy wrote, I discontinued, the police officer, I discontinued the field sobriety test because the suspect was injuring himself. <laughs> so I know about powerless. <laughs> yeah. And I take this list back to the guy. Here's my list. And there was some other stuff. I've been sober a while, so it had a collection of sober craziness. Book says, I have a mind that lacks proportion and can't think straight. And it's, well, I'm driving down the freeway and the car pulls into my lane. And as uh, my friend Jerry in Dallas says, and it is my lane. <laughs> I saw in the back of a car the other day this lady had, had a sticker that said relax it's only a lane change <laughs> it's not personal isn't that crazy I want to just, it just I take it so personal like I'm a mind that lacks proportion and can't think straight I take my list back to the guy. He says, there's a lot of craziness on your list. I said, yeah. He said, and the craziest thing you ever did isn't on your list. What is that? And you did it repeatedly. What? And you did it before you started drinking. Every time you did it, you did it before you started to drink. You did it from a dry brain. What? You did it hundreds and hundreds of times. And it didn't make your list because it doesn't seem insane to you. But with all the evidence on this list that you should never drink again, and from a dry brain you repeatedly decided it would be okay to drink again. That's crazy. There is no other word for the fact that I could in the face of all of that evidence and before I had a drink decide to drink I don't mean from going to the second drink I mean the first drink I mean what the book recalls an obsession and since the 14th of August 1966 I have not had to deal with that obsession it was removed Oh, I've had thoughts of drinking. Everybody, those aren't obsessions. You know how I can tell? I didn't drink. When I have an obsession, it's an inter internal call that I'm going to respond to. And so there's a whiff of insanity through all of this. And it must be addressed, and the easiest way to address it is with, as it has been said before and this weekend many times, these steps. These steps. I did them uh, when I was relatively new. I read a, 
autobiographical inventory to somebody. I got uh, paid some of the money back, wrote a few letters, and there I hoped I could let it stay. I had no relationship with God. I didn't really want one. You know why? And it may be part of you. Of all of the ideas and notions about God that I could have selected, I picked one I didn't like. And he's a little tiny God. And he isn't going to help me. Because along the way, I also know that it's up to me to live an exemplary life. And if I can live an exemplary life long enough, he might look down and notice that and help me. I had no idea that God was inside me. I had no idea of that. It shocked me when you began to talk like that. I'm not a fit host for anything like that. I don't want him there. He's there. I didn't know I had the capacity for belief and for faith. I didn't know I believed in booze. It's, you know, the dictionary can be a great help going through that book. Look up the word belief. It's an expectancy. That's all it is. So I believed in booze. Sure I did. You look up the word faith. You know what it means? It's simple. It says a consistent trust born of experience. So I trust, I had faith in booze. You ever buy a bottle and you can't drink it just then and you lock it up in the glove compartment and you feel better? Faith takes you to feel better. Or you go in, as I did in college many times, and get the prescription for the uppers. And it's just a piece of paper, but I got it here and I walk out and I go, whoo, whoo, that's better. That's faith. That's what that is. And so we have that capacity. And I didn't know that. I just have a bunch of attitudes. I just have a horrible problem with my mom and my grandma. I stood at my mother's grave when I was 14 years old and they buried her. And I had known since I was seven that she, that I didn't love her and she didn't love me. My dad was the drunk in our home and my mom is, has been said a couple of times here today was very angry. And we lived with my grandma who is angrier yet. And my, uh, and we had all of the, the beating. But I want to say the beatings were just horrible and the taunting around the beating was horrible. You're not a man. Take your punishment. They did, I thought for a long time that I had been harmed permanently by that. I thought for a long time that I was contracted in some way that I couldn't live my life a hundred percent. I thought in some way that that treatment, which we would call child abuse today, was haunting me at a midbrain level, at a very deep level. And you know what? It's not true. It isn't true. There is, there was pain inflicted, physical pain. There was emotional pain. There was humiliation. There was anger created, rage. But it's like sliding into third base. Boy, that strawberry hurts for a couple of weeks. And then you find it heals, and then you can walk just like you always could, and then run. And I discovered one day in sobriety that I was not permanently damaged by that abuse. 
And it may be true for some people that they're permanently damaged by it. It wasn't my notion, but as long as I, it wasn't my experience, it wasn't what happened to me, but as long as I believed that it was, I was limited by that. Not they, what they did, but my belief about what they did. Limit, when you think you should limp, you limp. And I don't know if you knew what abuse you had to endure. But if you're sitting here able to be part of a group like this, you probably are not permanently harmed. You'll have to look at that yourself. But for me, I could see finally that I can laugh my laughter. I can live my life a hundred percent. I can be what I'm supposed to be. And that's a wonderful freedom. A little scary, but a wonderful freedom. We kind of get lost inside of that. Oh, they did it to me. I came to see that my ideas about my mother and my father were... I, I hung on to the fact that they had been bad parents. And what's interesting about that is that I think I'm the little advertisement running around telling the whole world what bad parents they've been. I know that if I really lived my life full out, you might make the huge mistake of thinking that my folks did a good job. <laughs> Boy, I don't want you to have that idea. Why else would I live in a shed? If I... I knew what my mother wanted for me. She wanted me to have a relationship with God. She wanted me to be happily married. She wanted me to be a productive citizen. I knew what my father wanted for me. He wanted me to be honest and respectful of the law and the government. Well, it might make him happy if I lived my life that way. I don't want to take that chance. <laughs> I mean, in the Bible it says... We're not here to talk about the Bible, but it says, honor your folks. It doesn't say honor them if they're doing it your way. I had to laugh. Somebody told me when Moses came down the hill with those tablets, he told the assembled group, he said, I got good news and I got bad news. He said, well, uh, give us the good news. He said, well, the good news is I got him down to ten. <laughs> He said, what's the bad news? They said, what's the bad news? He said, the bad news is that adultery is still on the list. <laughs> There's no extra charge for that. I just want to <laughs> The day came for me that I came to a place inside me where God is. And it's right out of step two in that big book. Right out of we agnostics. Right out of there. At step two, that's important. Because if you're going to ask me to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, I better have something going that makes me willing to do that. And what I had going when I came here would not make me willing. I could not do that. I had too many sources of power in front of that. All I want to do, for example, is make enough money so I don't have to trust God. Is that asking too much? And that's how I had it wired up. 
And I can't live like that because I don't have any power. And I need to tap into power. And I also need to see how I've been playing the power game. And that's the brilliance of Wilson's setup on the fourth step. Why would he start me with resentment? You know who I resent? I resent people that look more powerful than me. That's all. And there's four columns to do to deal with that, to watch those old ideas float up. What about that fear inventory? That's simply, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of power. If you look like you're powerful, more so than... Even a guy on the street that in L.A. that comes up and asks me for a buck has the power to make me feel goofy. And I go. he goes on my list. What about the sex inventory? It seems to me tonight that that is just simply a catalog of all of the ways I have tried to extract power from a situation that's not a legitimate source of power. And I take a look at all of that and read it to somebody and get busy with the idea that at step six I can list these old ideas, I can list these defects, I can really look to see if I'm willing to let them go and pray for willingness if I'm not. And when I get there, if, I, if I'm if i tapped in and I make that seven-step prayer, things change. I get a new mind. I get that entire psychic change that Silkworth talked about. Well, I just want to tell you a little bit about amends, about flying to Denver to be with my sister. I had not had anything to do with her because I thought she married her husband to make my father angry. He was born in Dothan, Alabama. He was terrible. And he hated black people. And my sister married a black guy. And I thought, well, I'm going to leave her alone. And I did for many years. And now I'm at step nine and I'm under new management and i got to go out there and clean this stuff up. And I went and sat with her and her husband. And I found out the damnedest thing. This guy was the deputy director of manpower for the state of Colorado. I didn't know that. This guy was a semi-pro rugby player. I didn't know that. These two had raised six kids in Denver during a time when interracial marriages were just tough. And they had themselves an accountant and an attorney. They had themselves a cop. They had themselves a retarded girl that earned her own living in a department store. They had themselves a colorblind family. The guy that taught English in high school, I said, where does he teach English in high school? They said, Tokyo. Oh, God, he teaches her kids in Tokyo. Yeah. I flew out of Denver with a new hero. And a guy I love very much, this Paul that she married. And I flew to Portland to be with my brother to tell him how sorry I was. And to... Roanoke, where my dad is buried and knelt at that grave. And to Georgia, where my little brother is. He pushed a cart around the city. 
had no place to stay. And we sat and talked for a couple of days. And he wouldn't come with me. He wouldn't do anything. And I visited the wives and the girlfriends and all the women whose dignity I'd taken out of my anger at my mother. I wasn't going back to Billings. I know I'm not doing that. And you go back. You're under new management. You go back. See, I've tasted the honey. I'm a seeker. And a seeker is somebody that's been touched by God in such a way that nothing less will ever do. And I've got to do it. I've got to go there. I've got to go there. You look up the word recovery in the dictionary, you know what it means? It means one definition, the extraction, the extraction of something precious out of that which appears to have no value. Recovery is like that. Here. I didn't want to go to that. An Al-Anon friend of mine flew up there with me because we both had to speak at a little thing in Billings. Wayne was just there. And it wasn't that bare truth, but it was something they had going. She came. They picked us up at the airport. We had lunch. They, and Corinne said, are you going over to the cemetery today? I said, yes. I don't want to talk. She said, I brought you something to take her. Clancy told me to write a letter to my mom. I had that with me. Corinne handed me a bag full of... I looked in it. I said, what is this? She said, you'll need it out there. And I looked in it and it was a liter of water and some shears, some flower seeds, some paper towels, some Kleenex. She said, go. And a guy gave me a ride and we tramped around the low rent part of the cemetery in Billings. I hadn't been there for so long. The last time I was there, I said, you don't love me. I don't love you either. As they buried her. And now I'm back. And I don't know what to do or what to say. All I know is that I'm, I'm willing to clean it up. I'm willing to let go of it. I'm willing as Susan said today, to forgive, to forgive. There's something so wonderfully precious about that. And I found that grave, and I knelt at that grave, and I began to clip around there and clean it up and buried that letter and buried the flower seeds and sprinkled some water. And I went down and found my grandma's grave, and I saluted her. And you were always consistent. She's the one when my mother died and we're living in the cellar, the four kids are in the cellar, she yelled down there, well, your mother died last night, are you going to go to school or not? And I'm thinking, well, that's to the end of you. And I carry it and I, you know, worship it. And now it's time to let it go. Because I always focused on the stuff I didn't like. I forgot to look at the fact that my grandma was there every day with food and shelter. My mom was there every day with love and laughter. And there were horrible bouts of anger and violence. But there was also something else. I began to see that and I began to cry. I didn't think I would ever cry all my tears. And I did. 
They took me back the next day. But the thing that is amazing about it is that I came back to Los Angeles with a completely different idea. An old idea had gone up in smoke because I always knew I cannot trust the important women in my life. That's just the way an old idea frames up. And I came out of there knowing I could always trust my mother. That she always loved me. And I began to see everybody about me in a different way. I hadn't been married for a long time, but there had been women in my life. And one came along after that. I would never have been interested in her before. She looked too healthy. Oh, I love her, Linda. Oh, we have such fun together. But the next week, Corinne called. She said, the al and Billings have uh, taken on a project that you should know about. I said, what is that? She said, they're going to make sure that your mother's grave always looks great. And they do that. And in the spring when the snow's off up there, I get a letter, I get a photograph. A photograph of a pretty grave. It's love. You know, that's all it is. And these amends are very important. In a day when we have a database manager at our home group, in a day when people talk about making amends by email, whatever that may mean, we got a gal back there that talks about coming out of a blackout in a chat room, for God's sake. <laughs> I think it's so important to go make amends. To talk face to face. To sit down. I've got guys, I take them through the steps. These guys I sponsor, I love them. I love them. God, they're sweet guys. And we, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic. And we begin this process of recovery. And they think, they do stuff, it just takes my breath away. Alan is a general contractor. And he spent a year and a half of his life going and saying to people that he had built homes for, for he knew he had not done what he should have done. He said, what can I, I know I didn't do it right. I came back here to straighten it out. What can I do? And they will tell you. <laughs> you can fix the leaks in the roof is what you can do. He spent a year and a half of his life, about half of his time, at no charge. Cleaning it up. Tom is the Tom's the window washer. He was then. Today he's a, a producer of uh, news stories for uh, network television. There's no way he can get anywhere near that job. But he's not just a window washer when he's drinking, but he's a burglar, and the window washing job helps him know where to go back at night. <laughs> And he had a long list of places. And he went and knocked on doors in South Pasadena, which was his territory. Did you live here six years ago? Yep. Was there a burglary then during this time here? Yeah. I did that. I did that. And I came here to clean it up with you. That takes a lot of power. 
That takes power we don't have until we tap into real power. He did that, and he cleaned it up, and he cleaned it up, and his life kept getting better. Then he had a woman in his life, and he's still cleaning. The day came, he had one more. And he had gone by there, and he couldn't stop, and he'd gone by there and knew it was not the time. And he called me and said, I'm going by today. i got to finish it up today. And he went by there. And he called me later that morning, and he said, I did it. I said, how did it go, Tom? He said, well, I wished you'd have been there with me. I thought, oh, boy. I should have been there. I said, what happened? He said, it was sweet. It was amazing. They invited me into their home, and they asked me a lot of questions about the burglary. And I told them what I could remember. And they were an older couple, nice people, gentle people, kind people. And I finally asked them the question that I had to ask them, that you told me to ask them. What can I do to clean this up with you? And they said, you've done it. And he said, what do you mean? They said, well, what you don't know is that until right now, we always thought our son did that. And a family healed up. And if you're new here, uh, we love you. Won't help you much, but we do. (laughs) It helps us. But if you stick around, somebody newer than you will come and sit down by you. And you'll find yourself loving that person. And your own healing will begin. And 64 years now, we've been calling that Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome home. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.